0: Well good morning church, how are you doing? My name is Andrew Anderson, and I am one of the pastors here on staff at CBC. I'm so glad you guys are with us. If if this is your first time here, I want to give you a special welcome. Glad you guys are here this morning joining us, uh, a bunch of people broken but restored by the grace of God. And if this is your first time here and you're checking us out or you've returned back to church, kind of checking things out here and what God's doing here, we're just so glad that you are able to make it and join us uh, in worship together this morning. I want to invite you up front to go ahead and grab your Bibles and jump to the book of first, or excuse me, second. Kings. If you don't have your Bibles, go ahead and throw your hand up, and one of our ushers would be happy to bring you a Bible that's yours to have, to keep, and to use. Now I'll give you a minute to turn to 2 Kings. If you can't find it, you'll find it at the table of contents at the beginning, and or you can start at the front and start heading to the right, 12 books in, and you'll land 2 Kings. We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 4. Today we're going to pick up... On part two of a message that I started last week, looking at the story of a Shunammite woman and her experience with a holy man named Elisha. This morning, I also am excited that we get to finish up our 10-week series that we've been in called Live It Up, learning how to live up our faith to the fullest and live out of our faith to the fullest in an effort to honor God and to bless others. And I'm excited about what that looks like. And today, Today, we're going to talk about commitment all about commitment and what it takes to to live it up and to live it out. And as I was thinking about commitment, I can't think of a better example to help us explain commitment than that of a New Year's resolution. Maybe you are like a majority of Americans that culturally, annually, every January, will make a New Year's resolution. And if you are, then statistically, you fall somewhere in what I'm about to share with you. I was reading recently this week in fact in Forbes magazine and a few other different places that 92% 92% of every person that makes a new year's resolution will not finish their resolution throughout the year. Not only will a mere 8% continue on and finish strong their resolution, but almost 50% of the 92% that won't make it in a year almost 50% will bow out in the first 30 days. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. On the list that I was studying, it gave 10 examples, the top 10. And I pulled five quickly that I want to share with you, resolutions. Maybe you can identify with these. But the number one on every chart was weight loss. Every January, people want want to lose weight. And if you know anything about The gym industry or the fitness industry, you know that the gym is the most busy and memberships are the most active in January and February and then in April and May. January and February because of New Year's resolutions in April and May to prepare you for the beach bod. That is kind of the the, the life cycle of gym memberships. The number one goal that most folks have is to lose weight. The second one is to quit smoking. A lot of people want to start January 1st and want to kick old habits and so they want to stop smoking. Another example of a New Year's resolution that is pretty common is that people want to serve others. They want to do something to to benefit others. And so they'll look for opportunities to get involved in community, in civic groups, in their local schools, their library, whatever it is. They want to serve others. Another example of a New Year's resolution that was on every list I read was a, a calendar. People want to better manage their time. And so they'll print out a schedule and they'll try to manage their time better to be more effective, to be more efficient. And then last but certainly not least, that was on every one of these lists that I, that I read, is people want to save more and spend less. A New Year's resolution is they want to change their finances. They want a whole new approach to how they see spending and what they do with their money. I wanted to know some of the psychology behind why 92% of those who make a New Year's resolution won't see it to fruition. And I found several things, but I want to share five with you this morning. Five common reasons that people will not follow through on their commitment. One is they don't have anything invested. They don't have a vested interest in it. It's just an idea. It's something they like to do, but it has not really cost them anything, so there's really no stake in the game. Number two is they don't have a plan. And without a plan, let's be honest, it's little more than a good idea. And so they have this idea about what they'd like to accomplish, but they never draw it out in terms of putting a plan together. The third is that they lose ambition. They're easily distracted. They're, they're taken off track. Another example of why people don't fall through on their New Year's resolutions or their commitments is because they don't have accountability. They're going it alone. They don't have somebody there walking alongside them, asking the tough questions, doing it with them. And then finally, the last example that I'll give is I think people are, are readily available to jump ship. Uh, they're, 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 they're easily de- uh, detoured when things get difficult, when, when the cravings kick in, the cravings for food or the cravings for a cigarette or the cravings for, uh, uh, you know, uh, The Bachelorette. Maybe you've tr- sworn that off this year. You're not going to watch The Bachelorette. I'm giving it up for my New Year's resolution is not to watch The Bachelorette and I'm going to give it up at Lent as well. I don't know. Whatever it is. But it's because people don't have a a strong, unwavered commitment, and they're easily distracted and, and pulling off. While all these things made sense to me, one of the things that was a little discouraging and alarming, quite frankly, I began to look at commitments in the local church. I began to consider commitments that we as believers make. You know, I've never once encountered somebody who entered into a right relationship with Jesus predicated on the fact that I just wanna be a casual Christian. I wanna be a follower of Jesus, but I'm only half in. I've never heard anybody do that. Now, I'm sure it's happened, but nobody's been that candid with me. It's really the opposite. Everybody, when they come into a right relationship with Jesus, they tend to have an emotional experience, they tend to have a spiritual encounter, They tend to be surrounded by others or have been walking through this journey with others. They didn't just arrive at it. And they get excited about the the possibilities that lie ahead as they encounter Jesus and their lives are forever changed and forged into eternity. And they want to live their life for Jesus. They want to grow in their faith. They want to grow in their knowledge. They want to grow in their understanding. They want to become the best possible Christian version of themselves that they can become. But then it begs the question, why do we have so many casual Christians? Why do we have so many people that are stagnant in their faith, not growing? Why do we have so many Christians not living it up, not living it out, not experiencing the life that Jesus has to the fullest? And I would argue that the reasons that we don't follow through on our annual New Year's resolutions or the other commitments that we have in life are probably very commonplace in our faith as well. You see, when you come into Jesus, a right relationship with Jesus, if you don't have a next step, a clear next step laid out, a plan, you're going to easily be distracted or, or, or taken off course. If you don't understand that Jesus says, in this world you will have troubles of many kind, but take heart, I've overcome the world. If you don't understand that and have a, have a clear uh, path in front of you of what that looks like to stay committed to your faith in the midst of trials, it's going to be easy to be pulled off when things get difficult. If you don't have somebody holding you accountable or a community of believers, an accountability partner, or a life group that you're in, but you're trying to figure it out on your own and just make it up as you go, it's going to be easy to lose sight of what's important and why you committed in the first place. And so today, over the next few minutes together, I propose that we're going to look at four examples of commitment, four characteristics of commitment that will help us in our commitment as Christians to live it up for Jesus and to live it out in an effort to honor God. Last week, If you were here, or if you had the opportunity to watch online, the first part of this two-part message, I talked about the Shunammite woman, and how Elisha the prophet, as he was going into town, encountered the Shunammite woman, and she was impressed by Elisha. She recognized that he was a godly man because of how he lived his life. And she invited him for a meal. And every time Elisha then would come by their community after that, he would stop off for a meal she was talking to her husband, and she was a wealthy woman. She said, I want to bless this man. Why don't we build him a room that he can have as his own to rest and stay at as he's traveling and he stops into town? And so her husband wasn't going to argue with her. He went upstairs and built the room. And up on top of the roof, they furnished it with a bed and a lantern and a table, a chair. And every time Elisha would come through the community, he would stop off at the Shunammite woman's house and her husband. He would have a meal with her and he would go up to the upper room that was prepared for him with his servant Gehazi. One of these trips, he asks his servant Gehazi to find out how he can bless this woman. As a byproduct of how blessed he had felt and how he had been blessed, he wanted to be the blesser. And Gehazi goes to this Shunammite woman and he says, what can we do for you? And her response is, well, I don't need anything. I'm well taken care of by my family. Again, she's a wealthy woman. We learned last week that it would have been easy enough for Elisha to just leave well enough alone and and take her at face value and say, okay, she doesn't need anything and just move on about his business. But he didn't stop. He began to look for ways to, to bless this woman and found out that she had been barren. She and her husband had never been able to produce a child and we learned last week that culturally, that meant a lot. That said a lot. That spoke volumes because a rite of passage or a way of life in terms of status was a woman being able to bear a child. And so, Elisha, with Gehazi there and the Shunammite woman, tells her, "You will have a child." And she says, "No, no, 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 no! Please don't, don't get my hopes up. Don't deceive me. Don't disappoint me. I'm old in age. My husband's old. We've never been able to have a child." But sure enough, a year later, she has a child. And last week, we talked about how in order to live it up, in order to live up our faith to the fullest, it means that we have to live beyond ourselves. And living beyond ourselves means that we recognize three things. First, we have to recognize that every one of us has something to give. We all have some time that we can afford to give. We all have some talent that we have to give. Some experiences in life that we have To give, We all who know Jesus have a spiritual gift that we can give. So we have to recognize that we all have something to give. The second thing that we talked about last week is that we, in order to live life beyond ourselves, we need to be looking for opportunities to give what God has given us to give. We need to be intentional, ever looking for those moments where we can bless others. And it talked about how Elisha had done that. The Shunammite woman said, I don't need anything, but he didn't leave it. At that, He began to look for ways to bless her. And the third thing that we talked about last week was that we need to meet people where they're at. Not expect them to come to us, but recognize that God has given us something to give. We need to look for opportunities to give, and then we need to go and meet people where they're at in, in, in those needs. And today, as we pick up part two of this two-part sermon... We're going to look at four characteristics of commitment that I believe we need to uh, implore or apply to our lives in order to grow in our faith, to grow in our knowledge, to grow in our understanding, to raise the bar of our commitment so that we can live it up to the fullest and live out our faith in Jesus. As we do, I want to invite you guys to pray with me as we get into his word together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for what you've already done at our, our other services. Thank you for your word how it's come alive and lord i pray that in these few moments we have together yet again your word would come alive that it would capture our imaginations and it would penetrate our hearts lord i pray that you would speak to each one of us individually right where we're at meet us where we're at lord but don't leave us here ready us now to receive from this time And Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be holy and pleasing before you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, it reads, one day when her child, the Shunammite child was older, he went out to help his father who was working with the harvesters. And suddenly he cried out, my head hurts, my head hurts. His father said to one of the servants, carry him home home to his mother. So the servant took him home and his mother held him on her lap. But around noontime he died. And she carried him up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and then shut the door and left him there. She sent a message to her husband, Send one of the servants and a donkey so that I can hurry to the man of God and come right back. Her husband responded, why go today? He asked. It is neither a new moon festival nor a Sabbath. But she said, it will be all right. I would love for you to highlight that in your Bible in some fashion. Because we're going to come back to that here in a moment. But this is something that I believe we need to come back to often. And so she saddled the donkey and said to the servant, hurry, don't slow down unless I tell you to. The first of the four characteristics that I want to share with you today is this. Commitment to live it up requires an unwavering faith. Commitment to live it up To live up our faith and grow in our faith and to live it out requires an unwavering faith. And we're going to talk about that here over the next few minutes together. But I want to talk about this woman and this experience. Culturally, what has gone on in what we just read is so abnormal, I don't know where to begin. We can look culturally in our own lives and in our societal perspective and realize that when someone dies or is sick, we call for a doctor they check their vitals, they look to see if they can help. If they pass away, then the first thing that happens is they call either a, a pastor or a clergy member or, or a chaplain to come in and meet with the family to discuss next steps. An arrangement for a mortuary will be made. They'll reach out to it, an individual to make those arrangements. They'll begin meeting with the churches staff to determine what next steps have to happen in in this process. And then a mourning begins. Wailing, weeping, crying. Culturally for them, they would put on sackcloth and they would douse themselves, cover themselves with ashes. They would hire professional mourners who would mourn with them the loss of their loved one. They would wail aloud on the city streets. They wanted to share with others their grief. They wanted word to get out. What this Shunammite woman does is bizarre in almost every respect, at least on the surface, until you understand a little more. What she does is she takes his body, she climbs the stairs outside of her home to the upper room, she lays his dead body, lifeless body, in the bed of Elisha. She sends word to her husband and, he, and says, send me one of your servants and, and a donkey, I'm gonna go meet this man. And her husband looks at the situation and he says, why bother? It's not... A festival, it's not a new moon, it's not the Sabbath. There's no reason to go. And in the middle of all this turmoil, in the middle of all the hardship, in the middle of all the brokenness of this situation that it represented and all that it meant, what does she say in the middle of all of it? It will be all right. It will be all right. This woman demonstrates an unwavering faith in her commitment to God that it didn't matter what life's circumstances were. She knew that there had to be more to the story. At least she was willing to invest her entire life on it. She was willing to bet everything she had on it. And so she didn't go through the traditional customary way of mourning and preparing for a funeral. She had a different idea in mind. And she gets her servant together and she says, I want you to pack the donkey and I want you to take me. Hurry up and don't stop no matter what unless I tell you to stop in order for us to really experience the fullness of living it up in our faith and living it out, we have got to be committed to an unwavering faith. Now, let me tell you what an unwavering faith is not. An unwavering faith is not perfect. An unwavering faith does not mean that you won't face distractions. An unwavering faith doesn't even mean you won't have doubts. An unwavering faith does represent a commitment to keeping our eyes fixed on Christ in the midst of those doubts. Identifying those doubts for what they are, calling them out and then recommitting. An unwavering faith recognizes that there is something greater at stake here besides the distractions of this world surrounding us and it stays the course even when it's difficult. In order for us to live it up and live our life to the fullest, Church, I believe we have to have an unwavering faith. Without it, the first bump in the road, the first hiccup, the first major catastrophe will completely derail us. And if you remember in Peter's letter, he says it will be worse than it was before. And so it's imperative then that we take extra measures and are proactive in developing an unwavering faith and that is only developed through experience as you go through the little things in life you stay committed to christ as you go through the medium things in christ as though there's some scale of what's hardest and what's not you stay committed to christ and when you come to the major catastrophes in life you stay committed to christ never perfect always full of his grace but ever committed to be unwavering in your faith. That's how I believe that this woman, in the middle of what we can all agree on, would be one of the most difficult circumstances, if not the most difficult circumstance in life. Losing a child can say, it will be all right. And I wanna ask you this morning to do a bit of a gut check and ask yourself, can you say with assurance and confidence that regardless of where you find yourself circumstantially, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, financially this morning, that it will be all right. And if not, then I would question whether or not you've been living out an unwavering commitment to Christ or if you've allowed the distractions of this world to come against you. And this is not an indictment. This is a, I pray that you'll find this helpful and useful for for taking that next necessary step in growing in your relationship and in your knowledge so that you can have an unwavering faith and commitment in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, the author of Hebrews says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He says, Let us hold fast, take hold of the confession of our hope, that which we hope for and certain of what we do not see, that kind of faith, without wavering, without faltering, without giving in, for he who promised. Is faithful. Church, I believe that in order for us to live a life of faith and to live it up, it requires that we are unwavering. And the only way that I know that we can be unwavering in our commitment is if we remember the promises of God. When you face the trials of life, when you come against the hardships, when you are distracted, when you begin to doubt and question everything around you, when you begin to question your own existence, when you begin to question your relationship with God, the way that we remain unwavering in our commitment is by remembering the promises of God. The only way that I know to remember the promises of God is if we first understand and know the promises of God. We only do that by knowing his word. So I would ask you this morning to think about this one question. What promise of God do you need to remember where you're at right now so that you can remain unwavering in your commitment to Christ? What promise of God do you need to cling to, do you need to hold on to, that you need to take hold of in this moment in an effort To remain unwavering in your faith. This is is exemplified by Jesus. Who before starting his public ministry is tempted in the desert for 40 days. He's out there. He's fasting. and and, and, And he faces three temptations. The first being, Jesus, you've got to be hungry. You've been fasting all this time. And you're powerful enough. You can take this stone and turn it into bread. And Jesus holds on to the promise of God. That man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the next two times that Jesus is tempted, he holds on to the promises of God. And he remains unwavering. Church, in order for us to remain unwavering, we've got to hold on to the promises of God. That is the only way we will be able to live it up and live it out to the fullest. What promise of God do you need to hold on to this morning so that you can be prepared to be unwavering in your faith? Verse 25 reads as she, the Shunammite woman, approached the man of God at Mount Carmel. Elisha saw her in the distance. He said to Gehazi, look, the woman from Shunamm is coming. Run out to meet her and ask her, is everything all right with you, your husband and your child? And so Gehazi does this and the Shunammite woman responds, yes, the woman told Gehazi. Everything is fine. Now we know that emotionally everything isn't fine. We know that Physically, everything isn't fine. So how is it that she is able to say everything is fine? Because she's holding on to the promises of God. But it's more than that. It's going to lead us into our second characteristic of commitment in living it up. But when she came to the man of God at the mountain, she fell to the ground before him. She caught hold of his feet. Gehazi began to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone. She's deeply troubled, but the Lord has not revealed and told me what it is. And then she, the Shunammite woman said, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? And, And didn't I say don't deceive me and get my hopes up? Then Elisha said to Gehazi, get ready to travel. Take my staff and go. Don't talk to anyone along the way. Go quickly and lay the staff on the child's face. But the boy's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I won't go home unless you go with me. So Elisha returned with her. This woman who's full of grief, we see throughout scripture that to fall prostrate is a sign of total surrender, total submission. It's a sign of deep respect, of awe, of adoration. It's also a sign of brokenness. This woman respects this man of God. This woman wants to hold on to the promises of God. This woman is broken. She's grieving. And so she falls prostrate in recognition of this man of God. And and in deep brokenness, she clings to his ankles and she cries out. She's honest with him. And if I want to talk to you about something for this this morning, I want to talk to you about this. We need to get honest with where we're at with God. Some of us need to get real honest with God and tell him how difficult it is, how difficult these moments in life are, how difficult it is to follow him every day, how difficult it is to live as a Christian in our society, how difficult it is to set the example, to lead the way in all things, to lead with excellence How difficult it is in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of depravity, in the midst of wrecked relationships, in the midst of financial turmoil, in the midst of countries at war with one another, and even in the midst of churches that are at odds with each other and and brothers and sisters who can't seem to agree on, on, on the important things. We need to get real honest about where we're at in life and our hardships, the things that we're struggling with, and cry out to God because God meets us in our brokenness. Gehazi is trying to push this Shunammite woman off. And what does Elisha say? Leave her alone. She's deeply troubled. There's something wrong. and The Lord hasn't revealed it to me, but, but I want you to go and I want you to take my staff and I want you to go quickly. Don't let anybody distract you and, and stop you and lay this staff on this child's face. You see, that's an example of how God meets us. That's a characteristic of God. He meets us in our brokenness. When we can cry out before him, when we're honest about what we're struggling with, he meets us where we're at. And when people uh, come and try to distract us, God pushes them aside and he says, let them come to me. We see that again in the New Testament, don't we? When the little children are coming to Jesus and the disciples stop them. And Jesus says, what are are you doing? Don't stop them, let them come to me. In fact, if you want to be my disciples, if you want to experience eternal life, you've got to become one of these children and have a childlike faith. I want to encourage you this morning to come to the altar, encounter God, lay it all at the foot of the cross. Whatever it is your struggle is, whatever it is you're battling, be honest about this. But here's the second characteristic that I want to share with you in terms of a commitment to living up our faith. Commitment to live it up requires a plan. Commitment to live it up in our faith requires a plan we've got to have a a plan in place listen to what jesus tells his disciples in the gospel of luke chapter 14 verses 28 and 30 suppose one of you wants to build a tower he says won't you first sit down and and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it for if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish as I researched why people fail on their commitments, specific to New Year's resolutions, is because they don't have a plan in place. One of the things that I've learned in my life as I have journeyed through life, and specific for me, I'm gonna talk about weight loss for a minute. If I were to demonstrate for you my struggle with weight since I was an eight-year-old kid, it would look like a yo-yo a big yo-yo, and I've done this for so long that I actually know how to do tricks with my yo-yo. Like I can walk the dog, I can can do the ladder, I can, that's how much this diet has been, you know, like my weight has been a yo-yo for me. But what I have learned over the course of my life and having struggled with my weight now for 30 years is that the times that I've been most successful in not only managing my weight and getting healthy, but building muscle and, and, and working toward my goals is when I write them out. To write out what I hope to accomplish, what I'm going to do to accomplish these things, and I put deadlines to them, and then I submit them to someone for accountability, which we'll talk about here in just a moment. It's true of of every one of our commitments in life. You know, I heard it said once, and I'm not sure who said it, but it was stated that if you fail to plan, you might as well plan to fail. You need a plan. You need a clear, concise outline of what you hope to accomplish. In business, in, in in the marketplace, it's called a business plan. You go to a a bank and you ask for a business loan and they want to hear your approach, what your plan is. And if you just sit there and tell them, well, I want to start a bicycle shop because I love riding bikes and I'm good at it. They're going to laugh you all the way out to your car. They're going to hold the door for you. They're going to tell you not to let it hit you where the good Lord split you. They're going to help you get in your car and say, best of luck to you. What a banker wants to see, a personal banker wants to see a business plan, which includes all the legal things that are necessary, an LLC or whatever kind of a corporation you're going to set up, what your structure is going to be, what your capital is going into it, what your business model is, what your 30, 60, 90-day plan is, who your target audience is, what research you've done. They want to know what you've done and where you want to go. And then in between what you, what, what you want to do and where you want to go, they want to know all the steps systematically that you intend to take to get where you feel you want to go. And we operate this way in most of our life. None of us financially sets out to retire early and doesn't have a plan. If you want to retire early without a plan, you know what that's called? Bankruptcy. Like, you you, you, you got to have a plan. You've gotta, that's why we have financial planners. They help us sit down and evaluate what we make, what we want to retire with. I mean, I told you once, I sat down my, my the, the guy who manages our finances, or at least our retirement, and, and I said, so do I have enough to retire? And he looked at my account, and he said, yeah, for about a month. Congratulations. And so we had to come up with a plan then that if I want to retire before I'm dead of what I'll have to look at. And, I, and so I brought all six of my children in and I said, here's my retirement. Some of you will catch that later. <laughs> We've got to have a plan in place. Or road trips. None of us, and before GPS, would leave from here to go to Florida and just figure it out as we go. Well, I know Florida is southeast, so if I drive southeast, I'll figure it out. That's ridiculous. Why then would we ever make an excuse about approaching our faith that way? We want to grow in our faith. We want to grow in our knowledge. We want to grow in our commitment to God. We want to live it up for all it's worth. We want to live it out. But we don't come to it with a plan in place. We don't know what our next steps are. How do we ever expect to grow in our faith without a plan? I've spent the last seven months working with our team, working with our staff and our elders. We've developed an entire ministry called the Connections Ministry under the leadership of Pastor Richard and Shannon Livermore and Jeannie Gensler that is designed to help you get connected to God, to one another, and and, and to the church. And in that are these next steps that we have come up with. It's a plan to help you grow in your faith, to grow in your knowledge, to grow in your understanding so that you can live it up. There's a next, you have to have a plan. You know, people come to me all the time and they'll say, well, I'm going to start praying more. Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to read my Bible. I love that. That's great. We, that's necessary. Hey, I'm going to get involved in the church. I'm going to start going to church. That's fantastic. But then when I follow up with, when are you going to pray? Well, what do you mean? Well, if you don't have a plan, then is, is prayer just going to be something that you do obligatory, uh, you know, kind of right before a meal and before bed? Or something you do in passing? Because without a plan... Like, I want to know when you're going to pray. How are you going to pray? What are you going to pray? Or, or reading your Bible. Well, okay, where are you going to start? Are you going to start with the devotional? Are you going to start at the, the, the gospel, starting in Matthew? Are you going to start in Genesis? Are you going to have somebody hold you accountable? What's your reading plan? Are you going to do a 365-day reading plan? How much time are you going to set aside for, well, I don't know, I'm just going to read my Bible. Okay, but if you don't have a plan, it's going to be really easy to be distracted and taken away from your commitment. Well, I'm going to get involved in the church. I'm going to start going. Great, what service are you going to go to? We've got three eight, nine, 15, or 11. You pick. Which one are you going to come to? Well, oh, I, I, I don't know. How often are you need to come? Once a month? Once every other week? Every week? You going to be there every day? Like, how often are you going to be there? Some of you need it more than others. Like, I, 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 you, you, you need it every day. That's why, that's why I became a pastor. I need it every day. Without a plan, we cannot expect that we will grow in our knowledge, grace, and understanding. We can't assume that it's just going to happen. We've got to have a plan in place. know, I was thinking about that this last week, just the importance of a plan. And our, our family sets, sets goals every year. We sit down as a family, and we talk about our five Fs. Faith, family, finances, fitness, and future. That's free. You can go ahead and write that down. I'm not going to charge you anything for that. We'll sit down every year and we'll say, what are our faith goals, our family goals, our financial goals, our fitness goals, and our future goals? What do we want to accomplish? And we begin to process And we develop a plan. And I would love for you to understand that in order for us to grow in our commitment to Christ and to live it up, we have got to develop a plan of how we're going to get there. And we're here as a staff, as a church, as a pastor, we're committing to helping you establish that plan with your next steps. Verse 29, I want to start there again, and we're going to read through 31. Then Elisha said to Gehazi, get ready to travel. Take my staff and go. Don't talk to anyone along the way. Go quickly and lay the staff on the child's face. But the boy's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I won't go home unless you go with me. She had a plan. So Elijah returned with her. Gehazi hurried on ahead and laid the staff on the child's face, but nothing happened. There was no sign of life. He returned to meet Elisha and told him, The child is still dead. Which leads me to my third thought with regards to commitment in living it up and that's this commitment to live it up requires investment commitment to live it up requires investment so often the reason that we're easily able to set aside our goals and our commitments is because we have nothing invested but you give somebody an opportunity to invest everything they have financially in the stock market and I guarantee you, they're going to learn a whole lot about the NASDAQ and start following the Dow and the S&P and all that goes into that, won't they? They're going to take a really, a, a really hard look at it. They're going to have a vested interest because everything that they are, 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 are banking on is invested in there. We won't even think twice if we just invest a couple of dollars. And the same is true of our faith. We've got to invest in our faith. We've got to invest our time in growing in our faith. We've got to invest in reading the Word of God, and learning the Word of God. We've got to invest in our prayer life. We've got to invest in our community. We've got to invest in relationships with one another. We've got to invest in accountability. We've got to invest in serving the local church. We have got to invest ourselves in our faith. If we don't invest ourselves, then there's no reason to keep the commitment. But when we are invested, when we are giving of our time, our treasure, and our talents, when we are fully vested in what is in front of us toward growing in our faith, we're going to have a different outlook and a different perspective. We're going to become even more unwavering, and we're going to want to develop a plan because of the investment that we have in the local church. It is my desire that every one of you would become totally invested in what God is doing here in this church and what he wants to do in your life. When we have an invested interest, a vested interest, it changes everything. I want to talk to you for just a moment about something that seems really kind of obscure and easy to read right over, and it's Elisha's staff. It's mentioned twice here. Elisha says, here, Gehazi, take my staff and go, and I want you to lay it by this young man's face, and Gehazi does what he's asked, and then he goes back to Elisha and says, the kid's still dead. What's significant about that staff, there are really several things that are significant. First is, Elisha's staff was a a significant symbol of position. It's possible that Elijah, his mentor, had given him that staff. It carried with it the high calling that Elisha had adopted or received at his calling to be a prophet. That staff was, was, was synonymous with Elisha. It went hand in hand. People identified who he was and what he was by his staff. Another thing that is significant about that staff is that it was a way of life for Elisha. You see, Elisha would have used that staff as he was traveling really rocky, uneven terrain, the highs and the lows, to help stabilize himself. He would have used that staff to help his, his position and to, to, to carry some of the weight as he was digging into the ground and pulling himself up or as he was going downhill to, to, to lock it out first. And so it carried some of the weight. It was even stated that Elisha, or people who had staff, shepherds in particular, would take their palms and they would rest their palms one on top of the other. On top of the staff, they would rest their chin on it and they were able to take some of the pressure off of their body. They were able to physically relieve themselves a little bit by taking some of the pressure off with their staff. So it had a very practical purpose. A staff was also used to defend against predators, animals that might come and try to attack. You could ward them off with a staff it was an extension of your arm. Another thing unique about Elisha's staff is that these individuals would have made notches in this long piece of wood. And it would have signified something in their lives that they could look back on, a story, a way that God delivered them. And, and so it was, it was literally like a journal. And whenever they ran their hand up and down this, this, this shepherd's staff, they would feel these notches and remember what God had done. Or people could look at the staff and see a notch and ask the question, what does that mean? And you could identify quickly what it was. In our house, for years, with, with six kids, we've uh, checked the height of our children. It's become more so lately because before we moved here, my son was shorter than my wife, who claims she's 5'4", but she's not. She's all of five, three and a half at best. And my son grew like six inches overnight, and so he loves to tell her now that he's 5'9", almost 5'10", and he constantly wants to check. He wants to check his height by going nose to nose with me. You know where this is going. And so what we'll do then is my kids, all of them, will they'll, they'll, they'll line up against the wall, they'll put their heels back there, they'll puff up their chest, they'll get really tall, really big, and they hold their breath like it's going to make them taller. And then they'll want us to set a book on top of their head, and we'll take a pencil, and we'll make a mark. We'll pull it away, and then our kids will go get a, a tape measure, and we'll, we'll pull it all the way up, and we'll mark. We'll write their name. We'll write the date, and we'll write how tall they were. And we'll monitor their growth. And we'll look and see where they were to where they've gone. And some of you have lived in houses for decades, and you can celebrate now with your grandchildren, and you can take them to the place and say, this is when your mom was your age. This is when your dad was your age. And you can look, and you can say, I remember what life was like at that age. Boy, am I glad that I have grandkids now. <laughs> Whatever it is. But we celebrate those things. It was a journal. It, was, it, it tells a story, doesn't it? It's significant to us. So Elisha's staff is very similar in that there's notches that tell a story that you can celebrate. What I'm getting at is that Elisha had a lot of his life invested in this staff. Can you see that? Can you see that it identified who he was in his position? Can you see that it was used very practically to, 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 to ward off uh, predators and to carry the weight and to help establish himself on, on different terrain? Can you see that he would have used it to, 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 to tell a story? So for Elisha to give up his staff to Gehazi, to run to this dead, lifeless child and to lay it by his face is no small feat. What it is is a commitment to invest, he's saying I'm invested in this, I've invested in this woman, I've invested in this situation, and I want to continue to invest, and so here, take my staff, send my staff as a symbol of my investment. I'm gonna come, and I'm gonna do what I can through the power of God, for what only he can do, and I'm gonna be invested. Every one of us has something to invest in growing our faith and living it up and living it out. We talked about that every one of us has a gift last week, and it's up to us to to pray about the spiritual gifts and to recognize what we have as gifts that we can give. So my question to you this morning is, what do you need to invest? Every one of us has something to invest, but what is God calling you to invest in your faith? What is God calling you to invest as you live it up and live it out? What do you need to invest to, to put some real skin in the game to make it, To to, to where you feel what it is you're committed to. Because without investment, it's easy to walk away from your commitment. This morning, I want to encourage you to be invested in your faith. Verse 32 through 35. When Elisha arrived, the child was indeed dead, lying there on the prophet's bed. How many times do you walk into? The room of life and the circumstances seem dead. It sucks the life out of you. It's hopeless. It's desperate. There's no point, or so it seems. But Elisha went in alone, and he shut the door behind him, and he prayed to the Lord. Elisha prayed to the Lord. I want you to circle that. And then he lay down on the child's body, placing his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on the child's eyes, and his hands on the child's hands. And as he stretched out on him, the child's body began to grow warm again. Elisha got up and he walked back and forth across the room once, and then he stretched himself out again on the child. This time the boy sneezed seven times, which is an incredibly biblical number, so much significance to that number. And he opened his eyes I want to go on record this morning and tell you that there are some things in scripture that not only do I not understand, but are just flat out weird. This tops that list. (laughs) Lying on a dead boy's body, stretching yourself out over this dead boy, hands in hands, eye to eye, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, like I understand mouth to mouth resuscitation. This boy had been dead for hours and hours and hours. And when I took my first aid class, nobody said lie on top of him. I don't think that's helpful. It just doesn't make sense to me. And his body begins to grow warm, but what does Elisha do? He gets up, he paces the room, and he prays to God. And he does it again. He repeats the process. He's got a plan. He's unwavering. He's committed. And he does it again. And what does the Lord do? The Lord restores life into a dead man's body, into a dead boy's body. He restores life into a lifeless situation and a life that jumps up as the boy starts to sneeze. Which leads me to my fourth thought about commitment and that is this. Commitment to live it up requires reliance on God. We can try to do all the things in this world that we want to do or that we think we need to do or that we think we ought to do and try and try and try and try, but it will be in vain until we first and foremost recognize that without a total reliance on God, we will never experience what it means to live it up and live it out to the fullest. After all, we're carnal, born sinners, broken we need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit as our counselor and as our leader, as our guide. We need to rely on God. Listen to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4, in the midst of war. But when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. I will rely on you. I praise God for what he has promised. I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me in order for us to remain committed to living it up we have got to put a total reliance in God regardless of how lifeless the situation seems we have got to become unwavering in our commitment to Christ we have got to develop a plan in our commitment to Christ we have got to invest in our commitment to Christ but what trumps all of those very important aspects of commitment is that we need to fully learn to rely on God. That is how, in the midst of a lifeless situation, this woman could say, it is all right. It is going to be all right. Because she was relying fully, not on what she had to offer the situation, but on a great and sovereign God. That is how when Elisha sees the situation, recognizes something's going on that's grieving her spirit, even though he hasn't yet been revealed to him, he sends his staff ahead as a dedication of his investment and he walks into that situation and Elisha doesn't breathe life into the situation. His staff doesn't breathe life into the situation. Elisha is merely conduit to bring life in a dead situation. And I want to tell you this morning that I believe with all my heart as you become fully invested, as you become unwavering, as you develop a plan, and you learn to live it up and live it out to the fullest that you very well may be the conduit that God uses to breathe life into a dark, dead situation for someone else. They can see what total reliance on God looks like and why you can say with absolute assurance in the midst of the darkest hours of life that it will be all right because of your reliance on God. Do you have that reliance this morning? What areas of your life do you need to rely on God right now in this moment, in this moment? I want to finish with these last two verses and then the big so what this morning. Verses 36 and 37 bring us the culmination of the story, the conclusion. Then Elisha summoned Gehazi. Call the child's mother, he said. And when she came in, Elisha said, Here, take your son. She fell at his feet and bowed before him, overwhelmed with gratitude. Then she took her son in her arms and carried him downstairs. The big so what? What's it there for? What do I do with it? What now is this? Living it up doesn't just happen. It takes real commitment and the grace of God. Living it up doesn't just happen. It's not going to happen by osmosis. I've told you this before and I want to share it again. But that is about as silly, growing in your faith just by showing up to church is about as silly as going to the gym and working out by watching others. I did it on Friday, I know. (laughs) I didn't work out this week, I was in St. Louis doing some ministry things and with my son at uh, his last Olympic development training or um, tournament this year. And I came back, and I was meeting with with a friend of mine on Friday at at, at Scooter's there. And I went next door to Anytime Fitness where I work out and walked in. And uh, my friend is is there on the treadmill. And I walk up to him, and I start talking to him. And he's working out. He's been up there for about 25 minutes, the stair stepper. He's sweating like crazy, just drenched. And we're having a conversation about fitness. And health. And I look at him, and he says, you're not going to work out, are you? And I said, well, why do you say that? And he said, because you're in jeans and flip-flops. And I said, well, no, I actually was just coming to tell you that I'm not working out today, that I, I've been gone all week, but I'll, I'll be back next week. And he began to give me a little bit of a bad time <laughs> as he's sweating his tail off. And he gets down. I said, I was just hoping I could shake your hand and look like you. <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. You know what I really appreciate about my friend, and I even text him today to tell him this. He knows when I'm not there. That's why I went in. I went in to confess. Say I'm not there. And and how do you know that he knows I'm not there? Well, because he's the owner of the gym. Like, he will literally go and stalk me to find out if I checked in that day. And if I miss a couple of days in a row, he will send me a text message to say, bro, where are you at? Get your fat preaching tail in here so you're not a fat preacher anymore. You can be a skinny preacher and still preach your guts off. (laughs) I know you think cardiovascular is how much you move on Sunday, but that's just the beginning. Get in here. And he holds me accountable. He's actually not that nice. I mean, that mean about it. I'm being, I'm being mean. He's nice. That's what I meant. Sorry, he's really nice about it. My point is, I don't go it alone. I get to rely on somebody else to hold me accountable. It, uh, can, can, I, can I talk to you for a minute? My wife is at a women's retreat right now. She's not watching online, I don't think. I think she's listening to, to, to an amazing communicator in, in, in Amy who, who who's leading this retreat. I'm gonna tell y'all a secret. My wife's been gone since Friday morning. I miss her like crazy. Not only do I miss her because she's my wife and my best friend, but I've been home with my kids by myself. (laughs) I, I need her. I rely on her. And she relies on me and we look at the situation of life and our kids and how they've been brought up and it's only a miracle of God that they're half sane and normal. But beyond that, it's because we've learned to rely on each other. And I love when our kids come in, I don't really love it, it's kind of metaphorically speaking. They'll come in and they'll ask me a question and inevitably I always follow my question with, did you already ask your mom? And almost always they say what? Yes. And what did your mom say? And almost always they'll say, no. And then what are you asking me for, fool? (laughs) You want me to say yes, and then I'm in trouble with your mom. I'm no dummy dummy. If your mom said no, the answer is no, and don't put me in that position again. Like we learn to work together. We rely on each other. We're not in this alone. Church, we have got to learn to fully rely on God and to rely on one another. That's how we're going to grow in our faith to live it up so that we can live it out. It's all about that commitment, and it starts with a commitment. I want to leave you with this this morning. When I was coaching sports, I coached sports for a long time, and wrestling in particular for about 14 years. One of the things that I learned was really helpful in success for my student-athletes over the years was if we set commitments in place before the season started. So I would meet with all the parents and the student-athletes at a parent meeting, and I would hand them all a piece of paper that had a set of questions on it that I wanted them to identify answers for. And what it was, was it, it was a tool for them to begin to develop some goals, some commitments. And I'd ask them to come back in after their parents had gone over these goals with them and to share them with the team collectively what they hope to accomplish, individually, as a team, academically, athletically. And as we shared these as a team, we would then develop team goals. And I would have a big board, a big piece of construction paper with these goals up on there. And at the end, what I would do is I would ask every single person to make that commitment by signing their name to enter into a covenant or a contractual agreement that they are committed to seeing these things happen. And I too would set my goals for the team and my goals individually and I would talk about what practice was gonna look like throughout the year and, and I would make some promises to these guys. And we would set this commitment in place by signing our names. And the reason that I would do that and leave those up is because psychologically proven, when you have something that you hope to accomplish in front of you all the time, and you remember what it is you're looking for and what you're trying to accomplish and your investment in it, you see your name there, you are more likely than ever before to accomplish that than if you just forget it, put it up, put it on your paper in your pocket and move on. If you keep it in front of you, you are more likely to accomplish what it is you're committing to than if you just set it aside. Right now, I want to invite our youth director, Lisa Wheeler, up to the stage with some of the students and staff that are gonna be heading to Dominican Republic, coming up, in fact, tomorrow, 6 a.m. You guys have been gone for two weeks? Yes. I wanna talk to you guys, come on, scoot down. I wanna talk to you guys for a minute, okay? They get to be a part of our conversation. I am proud of you as your pastor for your willingness and your desire to live it up and to live it out. At your age, you have recognized that you have something to give. You recognize that you wanna make an impact in this world. You have helped raise the funds necessary to make this trip possible. You have gone through all of the studies that Lisa and Dane and the staff, Alicia and others, put in front of you before you could even go. You've walked through this with your parents You have been involved with our youth group. You guys have have stepped up in every way to, to become leaders, to prepare you for this trip. And you have made a commitment to jump on this plane tomorrow morning, each one of you with a bag of supplies that you're gonna donate to a country that is desperately in need. And you're gonna go and you're gonna meet these individuals, these little kids, these moms, these dads, these people who are broken, who need Jesus. And you have the opportunity to live out your faith very publicly, in a very humble way, by who you are and what you bring to the table. But that doesn't happen without a commitment. It started with a commitment from each and every one of you. And I wanna let you know that this morning, you are living examples for every one of us. Every one of us can learn from your commitment. This isn't a vacation. You guys are going to be going to work camps where you're going to be building. You're going to be working with kids who don't speak English. You're going to have to try to speak a common language. You're going to be working with people who are hungry, who are homeless, who don't have clothes, who don't have a family, who don't have a school to attend, that don't have a healthy structure. You are going to get to go and be the actual hands and feet of Christ for two weeks and leave an impact in their life and introduce them to Jesus by how you live your life and what you have to offer. And it started with a commitment. And I want to share with you what Paul told Timothy. Don't let anybody look down on you because of your age, but set an example in life, love, faith, speech, and purity. Go and be the hands and feet of Christ. Live it up and live it out. That is what I've challenged you to. That is what Lisa's challenged you to. That is what you have committed to. And this morning I am asking you to go public with your commitment. One of the best ways that I know to go public with our commitment is if we keep it in front of us and if we put our names on it to demonstrate yep, I'm committed to that. I'm going to pray for you guys here in just a minute. And then I have a challenge for you. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for these young men and women and these leaders who are committing to step out in faith, to be the hands and feet of Jesus to a culture in need. I'm praying that as they live out their commitment to live it up and to live it out, that you would give them favor, give them opportunities to share the gospel. With how they live and with their words. Father, I'm praying for miracles to take place. Lord, give them traveling mercies. Help them to grow ever closer and incredibly dependent and reliant on you as they recognize that what they have to give is is nothing without you. Help them to, to grow together. I pray against distractions, I pray against disagreements, I pray against. Anything that would throw off the work that you want to do in these students and their leaders. And Father, I pray for their health and their safety. Lord, I pray for their families as they're away. Protect them, keep them. And Lord, I pray that these students would come back, that these leaders would come back with a testimony of the incredible life change that we can celebrate with them, that we can be an extension of this incredible ministry through a commitment I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dane, grab the other side of this for me. I've got a commitment board here, church. This one, it says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And what I'm challenging you to, what I'm, what I'm challenging you to is that today you take the challenge to live it up and live it out to the best of your ability with total reliance on God. And the best way that I know how to do that is to commit together. And so what I'm asking is that you, along with me and this group of incredible young men and women would sign your name if you're willing to make that commitment if you're willing to be unwavering in your commitment if you're willing to develop a plan if you're willing to to invest in your faith and if you're willing to rely fully on God and and trust others to help you along the way I'm asking you to step out and to come and to sign your name right here just like this sign your name as a commitment as a dedication and what we're going to do is we're going to leave these out in the hall over the next several weeks as a reminder of your commitment and as a reminder of the commitment of others so that you can hold them accountable to living it up and living it out. In a moment, these guys are all going to have an opportunity to make this commitment. There's Sharpies on each side. Dane, I'm going to give you a Sharpie. Jackson, I'm going to give you a Sharpie, which puts will put you guys on the spot. It means you, you can't not sign. And then when they're done, we're going to take these... Yeah, you guys go ahead and start signing, and then you guys can go sit back down. When they're done making this commitment, we're going to take these commitment boards. We're going to set them in the back of the worship center, to my right and my left, and we're going to sing two songs as we, as we close out and worship together. And here's my challenge to you. It's simply this. If you're ready to make that commitment today, to live it up and to live it out, your faith for Jesus, at any point during those two songs, would you please set your comfort aside and get up and go back to these signature boards here, these commitment boards, and sign your name. That today, June 25th, 2017, this is where I'm starting and this is where I intend to go to commit my life to Jesus every step of the way and rely on him. Sign your name. I would love for you to make that investment. All right. Dan, why don't you take that one, please, to the back. And Taylor, thank you. She's sorry got that one. At any point along the way, or as you're leaving, please, if you're ready to make that commitment today, sign those boards. Jesus, I love you and I thank you for this time we've had together in your word. And Lord, I pray that as we spend the next few moments together worshiping you, through song and through making commitments and dedications, declaring publicly that you would be glorified, Father. I pray that this would be the, the, the catalyst that would send us out into a life committed to living for you in every way and that we would take the necessary steps to grow and to move and to be, relying on you every step of the way, Jesus. I pray. Amen. As you're comfortable, I encourage you to go and, or even if you're uncomfortable, I encourage you to go and sign your name <laughs> and, uh, and make that commitment. And then in a, in, a, in a few, we're gonna sing one song, guys, just one. And as, and as, we, as we close out this time together, let me let me make uh, just a, a a quick reminder. Immediately following the service, in fact, in 13 minutes, we're going to spend uh, we're going to spend about 30 minutes together, casting vision, celebrating where God has taken us from, where we're going, and then talking about a little bit about what it's going to take to get there. How do I know it's 30 minutes? Because I've got an entire staff ready to take me out at the knees if I keep going. So I'm going to say 30 to 45 minutes. <laughs> I'd just love for you to stick around. Please stick around if you can at all and celebrate our Congregational Summit with us. And right now, let's worship God by singing and celebrating and making those commitments.